0: Hi, my name is Colin. I'm a 37-year-old transgender woman, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm an
1: Welcome to Protest and Survive. I am your host, Reed Dunley so i was looking at the old episodes of this podcast the other day and it turns out that i've actually been doing this thing for over a year now starting back in february of 2019 in the past year we've put out 10 episodes so this episode i guess is season two episode two our guest is colin hagendorf colin is a zine maker writer podcast host restorative justice and trans support activist, currently based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I first became familiar with Colin's work through Slice Harvester, which was a fanzine in which Colin ate and reviewed every single slice of plain cheese pizza in Manhattan. Slice Harvester was this really amazing study of New York City. They were talking about New York's most iconic dish. It was this incredible piece of work that was broken up from neighborhood to neighborhood, where Colin went from pizza parlor to pizza parlor eating it and writing about it. But also Colin would bring a friend with them and interview and sort of talk about the projects and the stuff that that friend was working on, usually from like the punk scene or the anarchist scene. So it was the survey of New York, but through Colin's community, talking about this really like relatable thing, eating pizza. But it was so much more than that. I loved that zine. Colin and I got in touch, and we sort of rehash in this episode exactly how and when and why we got in touch, but I was making zines at the time, and basically we just started trading zines and got to know each other that way. Colin got me a job at a diner in Brooklyn that I worked at for a few years. As we started spending more time together, we started collaborating on some projects. I helped Colin in launching their life harvester radio project which is basically an extension of slice harvester but doing interviews with people about their work and when they first started doing it it was happening over slices of pizza and really throughout our relationship i've always looked up to colin as a little bit of a mentor um, a slightly older punk than me who's interested in a lot of the same things community documentation and activism and just general involvement and being a cool person and whatever. And I've thrown a lot of ideas Colin's way. Uh, We've collaborated on different things. Colin has given me a lot of great feedback on projects that I've been working on to straight up giving me edits on things that I was writing. So if you are familiar with Colin's work, you know that Colin really looks up to Aaron Cometbus of Cometbus fanzine. Um, I kind of feel the same way about Colin. I look up to their work and have learned a lot from them. In this interview, we talk about zine making and writing and just general, like, community documentation and the importance of that and, you know, some little kid coming across an interview you did with somebody that you admire and that person drawing inspiration from reading that. Considering that this interview happened right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States, of course we talked about that. In addition to all the changes and uncertainty that people are experiencing during the COVID-19 pandemic, Colin is also transitioning genders right now, so we talk about what that looks like in this sort of unprecedented moment in this country and in the world. We get into the work that Colin did with Support New York, a New York-based anarchist collective that did support and accountability work around sexual assault and intimate partner violence. Years after Support New York ended, I was involved in facilitating an accountability process for somebody, and we based that process on a curriculum that Support New York had developed. So, Colin and I get into a bit of a theoretical conversation about how those accountability processes can go. We also talk a bit about Colin's work right now with Trans Buddy, which is a peer support group for trans people seeking medical care in Pittsburgh. So honestly, I am excited for you, the listener, who is about to get to spend the next hour experiencing the New York charm and thoughtfulness that Colin brings to these issues. So without further ado, here is Colin Hagendorf on Season 2, Episode 2 of Protest and Survive.
0: Hi. um, I'm going to introduce myself. Oh my God. This is exactly what I said when I gave a lead at um, at the 40... Second anniversary of my AA home group uh, last Friday.
1: Forty-second anniversary, of what? Like of the existence that meeting, of the group,
0: that particular yeah. meeting. Yeah. So, AA, yeah. like AA meetings will so have. So not a your
1: not your forty-second anniversary. No.
0: Although of that it was my, I got my sixth year. I would have gotten my sixth year chip uh, two weeks ago. Um, Congrats. But uh, but I said I was supposed to. I gave a lead because they wanted to have diversity representation among the people speaking at the anniversary meeting. And I said, um, hi, my name is Colin. I'm a 37 year old transgender woman, and I'm an alcoholic. And I feel like that's probably a sufficient introduction for me.
1: I guess I'll also introduce you a little bit in addition to what I'll talk about in the intro that I do for this actual piece. But I mean, I've known you for a minute now. Probably like seven years or eight years or something like that, I would guess yeah and a long time i was yeah i don't I have no idea actually what the year would be to be honest well I would have
0: to... um I started slice harvester in twenty ten so we know it's after that
1: when did you finish slice harvester
0: twenty fifteen and it's way before I finished
1: yeah, okay because so you it's yelled at me on there. the street it's in the like the seven year eight-year range.
0: Yeah. You yelled, hey, Slice Harvester at me on the street. Really? Yeah. Cool. On Lorimer Street, you were walking by Mario Salerno, that Saints gas station that I used to live across the street from. And um, and you lived around the corner then and you were, and you yelled, hey, Slice Harvester as I was leaving my building. And I like looked all around and I saw you and I was like, who the fuck is that yelling, hey, Slice Harvester at me? Um, and then you had just kept walking. And then like, maybe a year later we met maybe less, six months or something. And um, you were like, Hey, I yelled, Hey, Slice Harvester at you on the street. The, the two things I remember most about first meeting you were that um, you yelled, Hey, Slice Harvester at me on the street. And then also the very first time we hung out, you were like, and feel free to cut this if you don't want this on the radio, but you were like, Hey, so are you into fighting? And I was like, <laughs> not really. And you were like, yeah, I didn't think so. I'm like, pretty into it, but I try to only fight people that also seem to be into fighting. And I just thought I was like, this is great. This is such a beautiful thing to be like, uh, seeking out, uh, like consensual combatants in public or whatever. (laughs) It's like cruising. Uh, but for, for a fist fight, I mean, I guess cruising for a bruising is a literal idiom. Yeah. Um, but I was very charmed by that.
1: Nice. That's so funny because, that sounds like something I would have said in that era. I was into fighting <laughs> at certain points in my life or earlier points in my life. But it's also funny because I was gonna, I was actually gonna ask you if you remember the first time we had met, and you actually remember the first time we met. Where I don't, I remember, I remember contacting you about slice harvester in some capacity, or maybe we just when we met. I thought I maybe sent an email or something, but maybe when we had met and had the fighting conversation. But I came into Jimmy's where you were working mm-hmm. at some point to trade zines with you. Oh yeah, um, and that's what I remembered as the first time meeting.
0: Yeah, no, that may, that's actually so. The fighting things happened later. That was like the first time we at, like hung out at my apartment, not um, when we met, but um, but the, at Jimmy's. That's when you told me about yelling at me on the street
1: that makes sense cuz i was okay.
0: i was anonymous at the time when i did slice harvester
1: yeah i wonder where i knew your name or knew your face or whatever from i were um, both punk
0: like i wasn't yeah, anonymous among punks every punk knew who i was yeah i was just anonymous like in the media or
1: whatever i do remember the the jimmy's meeting because yeah you were a waiter a server at jimmy's diner in brooklyn and i rem- i i feel like this happened more or this this like little tidbit came out later in our friendship but that like people would always people would like ask you if you were jimmy i think you said at some point all the time yeah because <laughs> it definitely seemed like it was your spot when we walked in because you're like singing along to like pop punk or something on the speaker's and just like, hey, what do you guys want? Come on in, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, oh, look at look at Colin's diner. I love it. <laughs>
0: People would always ask me if I was Jimmy. And then also, like once a year, a dude, a different dude in like a cheap suit and like a fake Rolex would be like, is that Jimmy, Jimmy Gestapo? Is he on this place? And then I would have to be like, no, <laughs> he's a contractor.
1: Yeah. And there's no there is no Jimmy, right?
0: Jimmy was like a dead grandfather of somebody.
1: I'm always very happy when I go into that place still.
0: Well, that's good.
1: Where you got me a job eventually. I did. And I deliver and I delivered food for a while.
0: I know. An essential worker.
1: Speaking of essential workers, do you wanna chat a little bit to start as to like how you're experiencing the COVID nineteen pandemic and how it's affecting your life and if your family is doing good and all that stuff
0: yeah if you want um i'm i'm incredibly lucky uh like in so many ways you know my girlfriend and i own a giant house in pittsburgh so i'm out of the city where it's chaotic things seem fucking crazy there um and uh we aren't worried about paying rent and like a lot of stuff is just pretty best case scenario um i'm also like Six months into HRT, so my hormones are, like, fucking crazy. And I am a true maniac at times, like a true teen. And it's really hard, I think, um, to be... It's hard for me to be stuck in a house, but it's also, I think, harder for Becca to be stuck in a house with me. um, Because there's just, like, no outside of my, um, like, all-consuming crazy moods at times. And it's, you know... It's like an inevitable part of this, but not something something that's going to last forever. It's not like I'm going to be moody for the rest of my life. Um, but, you know, it's just the timing is like a little uh, inopportune.
1: What does HRT stand for?
0: Hormone replacement therapy. Drugs to decrease my testosterone and I shoot estrogen in my leg every five days. Um, it's tight. I love it.
1: Are you are you good with the, the shooting part?
0: I love it. <laughs> I was never an IV drug user or anything. It's not like a thing that like makes me feel wistful. Um, like I, I never used a drug intravenously um, in my life until I was a um, uh, transsexual. But um, I uh, I do really enjoy the like ritual of the whole thing, setting out the needles and like doing the alcohol wipe down of everything and drawing the, the estrogen from the little bottle. It's just really, it's really nice. I'm actually going to do a shot right after I get off the phone with you.
1: Sweet. Yeah. Um, feel free re- to record the audio of it if you want. <laughs> There's we'll nothing to record. <laughs> like, st- yeah.
0: It's, not, it's veritably soundless. <laughs>
1: um, that's good. Cause you know, if you weren't into the whole, needle thing that could be, like, annoying.
0: Nah, they got other... I mean, I could take pills or, like... Yeah. A transdermal patch. There's all kinds of technology. The bummer is, it doesn't seem like anyone has done uh, any sort of comprehensive long-term research on any of it for um, transition. Like, most of the research is based on people doing hormone therapy for menopause. Like, a lot of the research in... to the antiandrogen that I take, um, the testosterone blocker, is about men that have testicular cancer. And a lot of the research into the um, synthetic estrogen that I shoot is for women that are going through menopause and doing like estrogen uh, addition or whatever therapy. And so I think that's actually still called HRT. It's just they're replacing the same hormone. But like, um, there's just not a lot of, it's hard to find like a peer reviewed study that's telling me like, oh, this one is better than that one or like, These are what the outcomes are, Um, because it seems like...
1: Because it's just too new and stuff?
0: No, people have been doing this since the 70s at least. It's um, No one cares.
1: Because it it was just too niche? Yeah, no one cares. Yeah. No money behind it. No money to be made. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. It's funny that you talk about the uh, challenges, I guess, or a challenge of, of transitioning your gender during coronavirus, because I've made a handful of remarks about how it must be hard to like be in a transition moment during coronavirus, like you just move cities Mm -hmm. or you're changing a job or something. Um, But this, the transition that you're talking about seems like it's probably a bit more of a, I don't know, could be a bit more loaded to have it be happening in this moment.
0: Yeah, but in other ways, it feels like I'm in a cocoon, you know, and I'm going to emerge different also like I I get to wearing a mask in public means I don't have to shave as often um which is just it's like the skin on my face does not want me to shave as often as I want to get rid of the hair on my face yeah and so um it is I think you know uh I don't want to call it a silver lining but it's just like a you know what I mean it's a thing that is not bad
1: yeah, well, and you also have a awesome home and a loving partner and whatever. So you're in like a good cocoon place. Yeah,
0: I'm so fucking lucky. Yeah, like so lucky. I'm, we're not stressed about money. We're like, also just being in Pittsburgh. Like, I think UPMC Hospital is at the forefront of the like vaccine research, and like, the population is less dense, so we have the like sort of benefits in terms of contagion shit of being in a less dense place, but, um, the like sort of cosmopolitan hospital access, um, in a way that that hasn't come up, like that hasn't been a thing that I've needed and hopefully won't need. Um, but like, it just feels like a real, like rolled the dice and came up good, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, I do want to back it up a little bit because we already chatted, about me yelling the word Slice Harvester um, at you. And can you, so for listeners who may not be familiar, can you tell me a little bit about what Slice Harvester was and how it all went down and you know, whatever sort of story you want to tell about it?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, um, I wrote a fanzine for a year for five. No, sorry. The book came out in 2015. The zines ended in 2012. Um, So it was just two, two and a half years. I wrote, a fanzine where I I um, reviewed every plain slice of pizza in Manhattan, uh, and I went to them all. I like mapped them out, and I went geographically, starting at in Inwood and working my way down. Um, and I and I ate them all, and I wrote the reviews, and I published it in a fanzine. It was really fun, and um, it made writing feel joyful in a way that it hadn't for me in a long time. Because I was in like I was like pretty bummed at that point in my life. Um, and it felt like a really cool and worthwhile way to spend my time. Like, uh, just like doing a fun thing. Um, and people loved it. I like paid my rent off that zine for a few months.
1: From people just buying the zine.
0: Yeah. I, I didn't pay for any copies. So it's like no overhead, you know?
1: Um, cause you were scamming. Scamming. How much did you sell them for? Five bucks?
0: No, Jesus. Three dollars. Which is crazy because now I sell my one-page zine that comes out every month for like two dollars, uh, but that's capitalism, baby. Inflation. I don't know. It just like it felt really good, and I and I would bring my friends with me and kind of use that as an excuse to talk about the projects they were working on that I thought were exciting. So it wasn't just like like a man versus food thing, you know, where it was like like my personality and or like the caricature of my personality that existed in that fanzine was like a through line, you know, and pizza and New York City were through lines. But like, um, it was also about just like talking about how much I love my friends uh, in a way that I think it was just like very, the whole thing was very joyous. You know, I loved eating pizza. I still love eating pizza. It's hard in Pittsburgh to love eating pizza, but I still do. And I loved hanging out with people, you know, like I loved being able to like take Ben Trogdon to eat pizza and then be like, spend five pizza reviews being like Ben Trogden is the fucking best, you know, or whatever. Like it, that just felt, it felt right.
1: Yeah. And I mean, cause whenever I've like explained that project to other people, it's always like, yeah, it's a, it was a scene about eating every slice of pizza or plain slice of pizza in Manhattan, which it very much was about, but it was also very much about like New York and the punk community and your friends and kind of like, hanging out with them or whatever so it was like this great little project that seemed simple but it was so well executed and also not that simple because it took a lot of time and stomach area to accomplish yeah
0: but that's still simple you know like it's just like it's it took a while but it's still it's like the premise is simple it's really basic and I think that's what people it's one thing that made me really like I think at that point I was like Um, I think really in the midst of segueing from like being a person that did stuff to being a person that just sat at the bar talking about doing stuff, which is, I think like a very sad potential late twenties transition that people can make in their lives. You know, where like, I wasn't really working that hard to play in bands anymore. And like, I hadn't done a zine. I did like a little mini zine because Joaquin de la Puente asked me to do a reading at Blue Stockings in like 2004 or something and I put out this little mini zine that was like kind of garbage but I you know I had done zines all through high school and like early in my 20s it felt like a really important aspect of who I was and I just like got bogged down in like a bunch of bullshit I think when I was I was just sad, like I was depressed and I was drunk all the time or really hung over and so I wasn't really doing anything. And I didn't care. I didn't have any aspirations to really be doing stuff and then, or like I had the aspirations but not the desire to do the work to follow through, you know, like I wanted to just like be done with it already. And doing that zine, like just thinking up a dumb idea and then realizing that no one had had done it and I was like, Oh, this is a thing that I can do. And it's not like I'm copying anyone. It's my own thing to do. It really, um, like, you know, I don't think I would have quit drinking if I didn't have slice harvester to fall back on. And I, I don't know that I necessarily would be like dead if I had not quit drinking, but I, I would be miserable, I think. And so I think there's like all these steps you can see where like my decision to make this pretty simple kind of dumb, dumb fanzine, sort of saved my life in a lot of ways, you know?
1: I feel like the best ideas are the ones that you can explain in less than a sentence. And so that's cool. It's, it's a dumb, dumb idea in a certain regard, but it's also like, it's hard to come up with like totally awesome, achievable things that you can be like, this is what it is. I ate every slice of pizza in Manhattan.
0: Everyone's like,
1: oh, there's nothing else. I don't need to, I can know more, but I don't need to know more. Yeah. You know? Um, it is being simple. It, it can be a challenge, I think. Yeah, for sure. And I also like, I learned from you, not so much necessarily. I mean, I learned about zines and stuff from reading that scene too. Cause that was kind of like when I was sort of really getting into like making zines and, you know, trading zines and all that bullshit. But I also learned a lot from you about, uh, having like humble and achievable goals and like I feel like I probably mentioned this to you before but when I had sort of approached you and been like you should do this like or we should do like a radio show out of Slice Harvester we should pitch it and like try to get it on WNYC because they're doing this like contest there when I work there and blah 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 and I don't know if you remember this conversation or if we have talked about it before but I was like that's a fun idea. You should go ahead and pitch it, but we should just do it like tomorrow um, and put it on and put it on WFMU where you're already DJing and we could like, just make it like, why do we need to ask anybody else to do it? And I was like, damn, that's really smart. Like, fuck it. Like, yeah, just do stuff. Yeah. And then see where they go from there. I mean, yeah. Of, and that's like, waiting for someone else.
0: That's part of the, like, and obviously like whatever things, um, ways that slice harvester was really helpful to me is like, stuff that I learned from being in punk, and, like, I think a particular kind of, like, uh, anarchist and, like, whatever, like, sort of political-oriented punk world. But, like, that's something that Slice Harvester really reinstilled for me, was, like, oh, sick, I can just do whatever I, Like, I think I had forgotten that I could just do whatever I want. Maybe it was just that I lost the... You know, I'm a ham. You know what I mean? I want people to pay... I want attention. uh, Clearly. You know? And, like, I want people to like me and to think I'm charming and funny and smart. Um, And I think I had maybe lost some of the confidence that, like, I could just do it, whatever, and people would like it. Because that is important to me. I think, like, I could pretend all day that art for art's sake or whatever, but that's not it. Like, I... It's art for attention's sake. I want people to like me and to think I'm cool. You know? That's why I make stuff. That's why I've always made stuff. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But, like, I think, yeah, when you approached me, it's funny that you say that because I had an episode of the podcast that we started together that I wouldn't have, an interview that I wouldn't have done if it wasn't for you with my friend Golnar, um, Golnar Poor, who used to, um, who was in... Uh, in school and used to coordinate maximum rock and roll and she was talking about like punks just knowing how to do stuff in this these very simple terms in a way that I was like I think of that as a conversation that for me really like um, solidified those values and it's funny to hear you talk about a time that I expressed those exact values before that conversation had ever occurred
1: <laughs> yeah totally yeah I mean there's no denying this punk shit you know It's a, it's a conversation that I think a lot of people have, but it's like, yeah, you kind of like learn, learn, like DIY is not a, uh, you know, like buzz word if you're a punk in the way that it is for like, you know, hipster indie kids. It's like, oh, you just like learned how to do stuff. You just booked a show. You just played. You know, figured it out. You just made stuff happen, and then obviously you can translate that into so many other parts of your life as you get older and want to make other things happen.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's I think it's a beautiful thing, and like whatever punk, um, also ruined me in many ways, <laughs> um, and like uh, was a gateway to meeting some of the literal worst human beings I've ever known in my entire life. Real pieces of shit.
1: <laughs> um But also a gateway to some of the best, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, exactly. And like, I I get a feeling that there's pieces of shit in every in every world. So it's not like, you know, pick what kind of pieces of shit you like the best. I guess.
1: Yeah, and you you do say that you do this stuff and make this art and radio and zines or whatever, so people think you're you're cool and they like you. But also, I have a feeling that it's. Also partially because you think other people are cool and you like them and you kind of want to like get to know them a little bit and document what they're doing. And can you, if, if that's true or if it's not true, can you talk a little bit about like, you know, what you think of the importance of documenting these, you know, seemingly not, I don't know, not super important things around us or something. You know what I mean? Like, why do, why do we, why do we continue as like literal adults to put out zines and radio shows and interview our friends or whatever
0: yeah i think you know i think like sometimes it's just i do it because i want a single person to think that i'm cool and like me and that is the person that i'm interviewing you know it's like a really good way to um to become friends with somebody is to be like uh hey can i interview you for two hours or whatever and then like i'm gonna do the four hours of work it takes to edit that down into something listenable and then We're gonna, I'm gonna put it out for people to hear. And it's show, it like shows an investment right off the cuff. It also is like uh, an easy way to just like sit someone down and ask them questions. They're like, there's no, it'd be weird if I just started doing that to people like at uh, The Rock Room, which is this uh, true Black Lodge portal of a bar in here in Pittsburgh. Okay, so like um, the new thing that I do. Um, the like monthly one-page fanzine that I do, uh, Life Harvester. The joke being, Slice Harvester, I was reviewing slices of pizza. In Life Harvester, I am reviewing uh, every aspect of my life. So, slowly, one at a time. Um, I've been listening to this um, Androids of Mew record, Blood Robots. Um, it's like a all-woman punk band from the early 80s that came out of the UK DIY scene, whatever, blah, blah, blah. They were like almost on Crash Records, but not because Penny Rimbaud wanted them to kick their drummer out and let him play drums, which I think is very funny, and they refused. Um, and the reason I know that fact is because I was looking them up online, and I found an interview with them from a fanzine from the early 80s. And it was so cool to read an interview with them from a fanzine from the early 80s. And the idea that, like, um, you know, I don't have any doubt that among the... I don't know, a couple of dozen people that I've had on my uh, radio program. Strangers will be interested in more than a few of them. The idea that some kid, you know, like a teen, I always think of it as a teen, but like I'm fucking almost 40 and I just had this experience. So like the idea that just like an interested party, an interested person is going to be like, oh, I wonder what's going on with that with Cindy Crabb or I wonder what's going on with... um, you know Brontes or whoever is gonna to get to hear them speak is gonna to get to hear their own voice is gonna to get to hear them in their own words. Um, it feels really good to just like be making that and it also seems like I always just felt like um, pay-to-play is the wrong language for it but it's like if I'm gonna to listen to interviews and read zines I need to be doing them too and I need to be doing a good job it can't just be some thrown-together garbage. Um, it needs to be something that people are going to care about. It needs to be worthwhile, and that—that's um, what feels important to me. And also, you know, I was talking to Comic Bus after the book came out. I, I did a book of Slice Harvester um, that is not as good as the zines. Uh, it came out on Simon and Schuster. It was like a big deal, major label book. And I was talking to Comic Bus right after the 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 book came out, and I was like telling him about this whole tour that I had planned and I was like which I didn't it never it never ended up happening I'm good at planning tours and not going on them of all kinds um, and I was like yeah and I think I can do this and this and then I can do this college thing to break even like it'll cover my gas costs and like everything for up until that point and he was like he was like Colin like that's very industrious but why they just paid you like 40 grand to write this book why are you worried about breaking even on a two-week tour like just go have fun and I think I had forgotten about doing stuff because Slice Harvester was the first thing I ever did that was financially viable. Instead of being like, "Oh, that's cool. That's a cool blessing that I did a thing that was financially viable and like prof I, I profited from," um, I felt like, "Oh, this is now the new standard. Like, I have to always either break even or make money off everything I do, and there's no like doing it for the joy." Like um, when I was in my early twenties, I played in bands, right? Um, and my grandpa, um, uh, you know, rest in peace, Sam Hagendorf, he would always say to me, um, why don't you play at a wedding? Why don't you play at a bar mitzvah? You know, get some money, get paid to play in your band. And, and I was like, that's not, I don't think you understand how that, it, it works, you know? And we would have this conversation over and over again. And finally one Passover, I was like, grandpa, you know how like, um, like the firemen in Queens near you and grandma's house have a baseball team and like they take it really seriously, but they're still, they're not baseball players. They're just firemen. That's like kind of how I play in a band. It's like a thing I really enjoy doing and I take it seriously, but I'm not, I'm still just a fireman or whatever. Um, and I think I forgot about that, like joy. And we can talk about the, the various you know the um, like uh, late stage capitalism ruined the economy and forced everybody to monetize every aspect of their lives. And like, there's so much we could. There's so many systemic reasons we could discuss about why it is that people have felt seemingly more urgent pressure to um, receive financial compensation for uh, what would have previously been considered labors of love. I'll like let theorists figure that stuff out like I just know what is going on in my own life and that is that when I don't do things just for pure joy I my life is tangibly sucks more life harvester radio or whatever it's never going to do numbers as a podcast like it's never going to be a huge thing but it's my thing and I do it and it's really it feels really valuable to me and to the people that I interview and I always joke that there's like, uh, I have 13 listeners. I know that there's more than that. You know, it's like maybe a couple of hundred, which is not great as far as podcast numbers go. But like, if you had told me when I was 14, doing my first fanzine, uh, that I was gonna do a thing that I would take for granted that a couple hundred people paid attention to every month, I would have, I would have said that's crazy. I would never take that for granted. You know, that's a couple hundred people. That's like six packed punk shows. You know, you only need 40 people to pack a punk show. That's also, I think, what I've been trying to focus on with the new fanzine. Because it was after after the book came out, I had this real notion that um, I w- was going to just write books now. And that was uh, five years ago it was published, and I've completed zero books in those five years. And, like, I've started a couple and blah, 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 whatever. Like, that's nice. And maybe I'll finish one of them. I hope so. I'd like to, you know. But, like, I think it didn't feel meaningful in the way that I felt like uh do you know the like um, Ramones syntax, I wanna wanna? Yeah. You know, where like, I think they're just repeating a word for the sake of pop song repetition. But I always thought of it as like um, desiring to desire something, you know, like, and I think of it in terms of ways that I feel like the things that I want fall short of what a good person or a cool person or a smart person would want. Right? Like, I don't know that I, you know, I, I know I want to want to write a book. But I don't know that I want to write a book because I haven't finished one yet. Um, I know that I want to do a fanzine again because I fucking do it. You know, and I actually have been such a dick about making sure that everyone knows that it's a newsletter and not a fanzine. Um, I don't know why. I feel like that's an important distinction. Now, here I am calling it a fanzine, but... Um, fucking sue me, you know? Uh, but it's like, I think,
1: why, why do you think it's an important distinction?
0: Well, I don't think it is. I mean, I think like I, I wanted it like I was just making something up. Um, but like, also like it's, I think um, it took, it took pressure off calling it a newsletter. Cause it's like, it's a single page trifold. It, it looks like, um, you know, it's called life harvester. The ladies at the post office think that I'm like um, an evangelical because I'm always I have a little rubber stamp that I stamp on the envelopes to return address and they think that I am like a uh, like a tattooed preacher because I'm always sending off this life harvester mail. They think I have like a mail order ministry. Um, and I kind of wanted it to look like um, like a like a rockin preacher or whatever had made it. you know I guess if you look at it closely it like says the m- month and year on the Hebrew calendar every month and not just, So people wouldn't think it was Christian, but, um, you know, I think that it's, I like the idea of like making a little thing that's easy to, it's really disposable. So like I can just leave a stack of them on the bus. I left them on the subway in New York. I could leave, I've been, I've been leaving them in little free libraries around Pittsburgh while I walk the dogs. Usually I send them to stores for free, but there's like no stores. So I, I just have, you know, I have individual subscribers that I get, that get it and I was, re- I was really feeling like an emotional pinch about um, not having the incidental contact. Because like, you know, I run a caption contest every month uh, where like a different artist friend, and again, this is, you know, the newsletter I write predominantly. Um, Becca, Rebecca Giordano, my partner, my girlfriend, um, uh, she's my girlfriend, I'm her partner. Um, edits edits it and it's there's a moment where you can where she started editing it where if you look back through them there is a marked improvement in the writing because she is really talented and I actually I think of Life Harvester as a colla- like a collaboration um, in pretty intense ways um, but um, you know we have this caption contest where I'll have different friends that are artists draw a picture and then I just Readers' mail-in captions. And the first caption contest submissions I got, I had given it hundreds of these things out to my actual friends, was from a 13-year-old who got a copy of the zine at the Bloomington Public Library because Cole from ADDC is a librarian there now and leaves them there. You know? And it's like, that's the kind of shit that I think is so important because my intellectual, emotional, artistic landscape or whatever is so populated with things that I just felt like I happened upon as a young person. And that like, I was very lucky to be um, growing up just outside New York City. So I was like in the city all the time. You could just find stuff. But like, it feels important to me to make that stuff for, like in the same way as like, I was like pretty mischievous when I was young. And one of the most fun things about being a troublemaker is a grown-up yelling at you and then you running away and like now i feel a really huge imperative to yell at kids being bad because i feel like it's like three quarters of the fun is that you are like it's not it's like a little bit of it is like the like feeling like ooh, what's gonna happen and then you get yelled at and then you run and it's so fun And I want to be, it's like a circle, you know, and I want to, I need to fulfill my role in that circle. And so if I was a little weird fucked up kid that found fanzines and found um, records and found like weird poetry chapbooks and whatever, and that changed my life, I owe it to every little fucked up kid to try to keep making more of those things into the future. So that they can find it. And even, and like. Yeah, of course I want every single person in the world to read my dumb newsletter or whatever, sure. But even if even if the whole of the impact is just that this thirteen year old found it or whatever, like that rules. Like that I that's fucking rules. And and I have a thing that I make that I can carry around and like give to a stranger. I was I gave one to some lady who had a cute kid in line at Costco, like a couple months ago, who was just like the kid was talking to me in Hindi. And the lady was like, "He's learning Hindi," Um, and I was like, "Teach me some Hindi." And the kid was teaching me Hindi, and she seemed like a cool lady. And so I was just like, "Oh, here, take my weird newsletter." And she definitely thought it was a Christian thing when she looked at it, which was funny. (laughs) And then, like later, I saw her in the food court of the Costco reading it. You know, and I I was like, "Oh, it's nice that I have you know, like a zine is. It's like daunting, even if I wasn't paying for them. It's daunting to give a whole zine to somebody because it's like." That's not, ob- you're giving them an obligation kind of, whereas just one piece of paper, it's like, here, just take this. You can have this. Um, yeah, I don't, forgot what the question was.
1: Me too. But I think we answered it. I did wanted to ask you all about Support New York because, you know, I know it's not an active organization anymore, but. Can you talk a little bit about what that organization was? And, you know, I don't need necessarily, like, the whole backstory of starting it or blah, blah, blah or whatever. But more kind of interested in, like, what you think about what that organization did in the context of, like, society catching up a little bit in some ways with Me Too. And then not always, like, knowing what to do after the call out and blah, 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 and kind of, you know, that's like 10 questions you can kind of run with there.
0: Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's a lot. And I don't know if I have such uh, succinct answers, but um, Support New York was an anarchist collective that engaged in support work with survivors of sexual assault and intimate partner violence and um, accountability work with perpetuators of sexual assault and intimate partner violence in New York City, predominantly in punk and anarchist milieu. Or a punk and activist milieu, I think we definitely did like a process for a communist once or something, you know. It was not without fault. I think the our biggest drawback and our biggest, uh, I don't know, what's the opposite of a drawback? Like, one of the coolest things about what we did was that we were not professionals. You know, we were just people from the community who had kind of decided that like enough is enough. Like enough of our friends had been assaulted. Enough of our friends had, enough of us had been assaulted enough people we knew were carrying trauma around, and enough of the, you know, men predominantly, because in the context that we were working, it was like almost exclusively heterosexual relationships with male aggressors and female survivors. And it felt like these men were just going about their lives uh, completely unfazed after creating these really traumatic circumstances for these women that we knew. And it was like, Um, I think, you know, best case scenario where it was, like, just about the men, like, not being inconsiderate of women's personhood and feelings and not, like, straight up acting uh, willfully uh, manipulative or aggressive or ignorant. Even in those cases, it's like these dudes were just, like, doling out trauma everywhere, it seemed like. And it just, it didn't, it felt terrible to be watching and that there was no repercussions for any of them. And so we started the collective, um, along the model of like Philly's pissed and Philly stands up in Philadelphia. Um, and we worked for a really long time. And I think, you know, we learned a lot, we helped a lot of people. We hurt a few people, I think, unintentionally. How long
1: How long is a really long time quickly?
0: Uh, 10 years, 2005 to 2015. Um, I think, like, I don't know if it's my place to talk about some of the mistakes that we made, but I think one of the biggest mistakes that we made that I do feel comfortably talk- comfortable talking about is that um, we all came from, like, a pretty, like, a a subset of a subset of a subculture. At the genesis of Support New York, we were all at the same parties and at the same shows, and we were dating each other and each other's friends, and, like, you know what I mean? We are like, in a community, in a scene, and... As we got older, all of us, you know, that scene starts to dissipate a little bit. And like, sure, I maintained a lot of friendships with people that I knew back then. But like, it's not, there's not the same sort of consistent hanging out. Not everyone's going to the gig all the time. People are going to grad school and shit. So much of what we did was predicated on being part of this community. And as we stopped being part of a community, we stopped having the same sort of, um, being able to exercise the same sort of social pressure on the um, perpetuators of violence to convince them to commit to a process in the first place. And we didn't really do the work to bring in younger people um, or like just new people that weren't living in our houses, um, going to our shows, hanging out with us. And you know, we tried at various points and there there were a few people that like sort of came in and came and went, but Ultimately, the crisis at the end when we, what had been the core collective for most of that decade, realized that we weren't up to it anymore. That, like, ten years was too much time to have spent taking in other people's trauma. And also, like, I don't mean to be, like, a wow wow boo baby, but, like, it's truly thankless work. Like, the friends of the survivor are often, like, why aren't you doing more? The friends of the perpetuator are, like, why... Are you castigating our friend? Everyone's mad at you. You can never do a good enough job and you're just trying to do harm reduction. And like, that's, I don't feel any type of way about that. I'm not like, I don't have a chip on my shoulder. I'm not mad at people for not respecting the nobility of our work, but it, it's hard to do something like that that has such a heavy emotional toll, just period, being adjacent to other people's trauma like that without having any sort of support um, or like broad support. And so like we started to burn out and when we started to burn out that's reasonable but what you should do if you want a thing to continue is that you know at the beginning that the people that are involved at the beginning are gonna burn out and there's gonna have to be new people. And so you have structures in place to bring those new people in. The activist work I do now is with um, an organization called Trans Buddy here in Pittsburgh that's like a peer support Group for trans people seeking medical care it's like a kind of based on like the 70s abortion doula model of like a sort of direct action medical intervention where like the thesis is essentially that trans people are we are oftentimes not respected by medical professionals in terms of names and pronouns um and like basic stuff and so aside from seeking gender related health care um Trans people are, are way less likely to go to, like, a dentist or the eye doctor or fucking wherever to get a flu shot. And so the goal of Trans Buddy is to provide peer volunteers who will go just, like, accompany people to doctor's appointments or whatever and just, like, be a witness, uh, make it so that they... If, if a nurse practitioner says something fucked up, there's, like, someone that can document that and that knows what avenues to go through in the various medical systems in Pittsburgh to file a grievance. Um, sometimes, I mean, that hasn't happened, luckily, thank God, in any of our experiences yet. It's been a year or so that the Trans Buddy has existed. Um, and I'm just a volunteer. I'm not, like, running the organization or anything. It's a similar model, but it's not where it's, like, community-based care. Um, but it's anonymized to it. Like, I, I'm just seeing how... My critiques of the nonprofit structure that I had as like a 23, 25, 27 year old, um, as legitimate as they were, I think led to me and the other people in Support New York in some ways kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and formalizing some of the um, onboarding of volunteers and like formalizing what the sort of work looks like in some ways and like I think. There's a nice analog here because with trans buddy, you can't actually know what it's going to be like to walk into a doctor's appointment with somebody. You know, there's no real amount of preparation that you can have that will adequately prepare you for what it ac- actually feels like to be in there and be like, I am this person's advocate. They are depending on me. But there is training that we provide, and then the new volunteers feel like they're equipped in some way. And there's like a structure of like reporting. This is what we. This is what what information we take from each doctor visit whatever um and there just was you know support new york was so casual because we were punks and we were doing a punk thing and like we were anarchists and fuck the state and fuck the man and fuck systems and so we didn't use systems to organize like systems of organization of like information are not the system you know like i wish i could go back and tell 25 year old me that like it's okay to keep my file cabinet more organized or whatever, you know? I don't know if I have anything to say about what's going on now. There's fucking only rapists uh, contending to be the president. Like, whatever ways we could have had a an illusion that, um, like, mainstream discourse around survivors and survivor status and sexual assault and the prevalence of, of predatory behavior among, like, type A men who are engaged in public-facing popular activities um, in whatever arena that is, uh, not just punk, uh, like, whatever ways we could pretend that that conversation had progressed in the past X number of years, like, I can't, I don't believe it right now. And, you know, my answer three months ago might have been different, but, like, it's, it's just hard for me to believe that the conversation as a whole has progressed if the people that are supposed to be, and like, don't get me wrong, like, whatever, you you know, like, fuck the Democrats. Um, fuck a liberal, you know? I never had any misconception that they were on my team. They're on the team of capital and money and always have been, but I, I definitely was laboring under the assumption that they were the the more likely to side with with my agenda, and it seems really clear that that was uh, that I was wrong about that, because in this, what I think is like a very straightforward situation, where like it takes a very straightforward response, which is that uh, you don't let a rapist be president, and you um, don't work, do like. Intense amounts of work to um, make a survivor seem uncredible uh, because you don't want to tarnish the reputation of the man. Uh, like they have failed miserably. It's fucked. It's every. It's fucked. Yeah, every, it does seem
1: like the um, the sort of nail in the coffin of the overarching illusion that America could ever do something good. When it comes to this, when it comes to all issues, but when it comes to this specific issue of like, oh, people started to like, like actually care in some way about this really important thing, but only for like two years until it was no longer convenient. And when it hit close to home, it was no longer, it was only when you could completely demonize somebody that, didn't matter to your life, you know?
0: Yeah. Or who like, it was expedient for you to demonize. Right. You know, like Brett Kavanaugh is a monster clearly, but like, um, the same people that were like, so like really grandstanding about him, uh, being terrible and who like those hearings, listening to those hearings made me cry so fucking much. Um, it was really hard to listen to but at the same time i was like man like some of this stuff that's being said on like the main mainstream political stage it's it's wonderful to hear like finally you know um, i hate that this is the circumstance but finally and then like some of the same people that were using the right language then now that it's their guy on their team are doing all the same shit and it's 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 horrifying
1: there's something horrifying. that you mentioned that i wanted to ask about because it kind of reminded me of something i had thought about before which was a, a minute ago you talked about kind of like falling out of the you know tight knit community that was happening around support new york and it kind of fizzled a bit and it was harder to put social pressure on people to Engage in the accountability that you guys were working on or whatever and so I think it's you know worth mentioning that the like I remember when you used to when this era that we have talked about earlier when we kind of knew each other in in zine days and back in the day and stuff I remember you talking about being involved in support New York and stuff and talking about restorative justice and I and looking back on it, I kind of remember like nodding my head and not actually knowing like what that meant and what it was. Um, so I kind of became much more aware of what support New York did when someone that I was really close with and good friends with was called out um, for multiple instances of sexual assault and rape and um, you know, obviously we're not really like going into the details of things in this context of this conversation, but the thing about the social pressure was so interesting to me because w- there were a lot of things that I learned by, you know, using the, um, using the curriculum that you guys had come up with at support New York to help facilitate this accounting accountability process for this person. And, the thing about the social pressure was just so interesting to me because it was like at first i was like "Ooh, that that feels icky you know to like kind of manipulate these like systems that i already don't really like very much about like you know the punk scene and the community and how people like use like social clout and whatever to like i don't know create like lives for themselves that they feel validated in by like having a bunch of Instagram followers or something or whatever the fuck. But like, you know, I, I guess this is a very vague sort of question and long winded, but you know, there was just something about like, that I found to be very interesting to like, be like, you know what we like exist. It's almost contradictory to what you were just saying about not being able to come up with the, with like the nonprofit system that would make that work because there was this level of using imperfect systems to achieve tangible goals. Like we were going to use the imperfect system of like of social hierarchy to be able to like literally stop somebody from abusing their next partner or something. You know what I mean? And there was like these compromises that were being made and I was like, cool. Like I can always kind of fuck with like a pragmatism like that of like, accomplishing what you're trying to accomplish even if it like it feels weird sometimes or whatever so my question is i don't really know i was just kind of more talking about that um but did you kind of find that happening a lot and do you find it happening now in your work at trans buddy at all and are there like things where it's like you kind of have to use the system in ways to to make it work um that feel weird sometimes
0: no i don't know I don't know how to answer that. I'm not sure that I have an answer.
1: I'm not sure that that was really a question, but <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> I don't think it was, but it was just, you know, it was just a statement.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think I know what you mean, but like, I don't know if I agree that it feels weird to like exercise social pressure to help someone in your community change. Like, I think that's what the purpose of having a society and a community is, is that like society and a yeah. community, you hold each other, like in an ideal sense, you, like, um, hold each other accountable and also, like, support each other in growth. And, like, it's not always going to look or feel good for everyone involved. And I think... Um,
1: well, I was just, um, you know, I, like, yes. But there was, like, this sort of impetus in my sort of thinking about it or this, like, thing of, like, oh, we should really, like... I'm trying to help this person like fully like change and at, in, in their whole mindset. And in a lot of ways, I think people are always changing in their mindsets when they're engaging in this. But there was something about that part that was like, oh, that's like not a mindset change. It's like kind of falling back into not falling back, but it's using something that's like not about their personal growth, but it's more about like, the way that they think that other people think about them, which doesn't seem as like monumental or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's not
0: that the thing, the thing is that in a process where that works, that's just the like fear of, um, of like being ostracized or whatever, or like the fear of being disliked. That's just what gets someone's foot in the door. Um, but that, in a in a successful process, that's never going to be the motivating factor for change, you know. And I don't think it's that different from like twelve um, step stuff. Not to bring it all the way back to the beginning, but like, you know, there are conversations to be have had about whether that that like the ways that twelve step programs have been. Um, sort of adopted as like a one-size-fits-all solution to addiction and like are utilized by the state and fail a lot of people. I think those are totally, those are legit conversations um, and important conversations to be had in like harm reduction um, contexts. But when it works, when working the steps works for somebody, it leads to a fundamental change. And the reason people go into the rooms for the first time is often not I want to fundamentally change. It's often like a judge made me come here or I act, I behaved in a way that made me feel ashamed or my friends are worried about me or my wife uh, or my husband or my children um, saw me in a compromised situation when I was fucked up and it made me feel a sense of shame. And I think that being motivated by that That shame that like, I'm going to prove something to my friends, to the courts, to the wife, to the husband, to whoever, that can't be the thing that gets you, that propels you all the way through the change. But if it's like the little ignition button on the camping stove or whatever, that's all it is. And that's all it needs to be. I don't think we need to overthink it. Like, I think it can just be, yeah, it sucks that people feel shame. It sucks that like, people feel tenuous connections to each other and feel like those connections can be taken away. It also sucks that um, people assault each other. And, like, if I have to weigh um, doing something that might be a preventative measure in another assault occurring versus, like, utilizing, like, fear of shame in a person to get them involved, it's no question. And it doesn't feel like a moral choice to me.
1: To be clear, I guess what what I was kind of saying is that I didn't see that at first and then did see it. And then was like, dope. Like I can actually like put aside like in my own head or my own like approach to things where I sometimes get too hung up on like those like moralistic questions or something. And it's like, no, it's about like the results and it's about getting the foot in the door. I mean, it like, it makes me think of like, I remember when I was um, really young and I was really, like I got really involved with, um, with the Green Party when I was a kid, like high school into college and whatever. Like I was talking about this um, with my girlfriend the other day, like I was like a, I was a nominating, like I was a delegate in the like presidential, like nominating convention for the Green Party in like 2008 I was like so i was like pretty in it or whatever you know what i mean and i would like kind of make it actually sort of similar analogy of like cuz all my friends were like anarchists and shit or whatever if they were into politics um and i kind of was and am in a lot of ways philosophically like more kind of like lean in that way but it was kind of like well i don't think that like voting will ever like accomplish anything even at the local level i was like oh the down ballot i guess really local level perhaps but even like not just president i don't think voting will accomplish anything because you're still fucking choosing between a bunch of corporate options however like
0: or the guy from regi- indecision
1: right if you're if you're in south brooklyn yeah um,
0: was he in indecision or was he in um the yeah, most precious I think, blood
1: i think indecision Maybe both yeah. I think he was in an indecision um, the guy that he ran ag- against was way cooler than him yeah I believe that. by the yeah he ran against this like um, like Lebanese pastor who was really cool Yeah. Um, but he was he was actually like the machine politician in that election. He was like the guy who like worked with the party a lot already <laughs> and had worked, had, had worked for like the previous city council member and stuff, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, it was a sort of thing where it's like, I actually don't give a fuck about the voting part or registering people to vote. I give a fuck about like what people might do once they start voting and then they're like, oh, and or once they get registered to vote and then they're like, oh, there's these other issues. That's the reason why I'm here. Maybe I'll actually like work on those or get involved in those or whatever beyond that. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're doing that trans buddy thing because I remember you um, talking to me about it like a while ago and I think you were like just getting involved or whatever, or thinking about getting involved.
0: Yeah. I don't know if it had started yet. And that's another thing that like um, was started by punks, like uh, yeah. the um, uh, kale Edmondson Dr. Cale Edmondson who is um one half of Nervous Nelly Records who put out the Gloss Seven Inches and I think a few other things um started Trans Buddy in um in Nashville when he lived there and it's like it's just another it's like circling back to so many parts of our conversation always you know and that's what happens in conversations but like It's another thing where, like, it was just a punk that was in, like, saw a problem and was like, oh, I'm just going to do this. Yeah. And it has been rocky, I think, like, getting it moving in Nashville and then starting it in a new city. And he's not involved in Trans Buddy here. Um, He helped, he's, like, doing other stuff. He's very busy. Um, But I think, you know, he was the impetus to getting it started and, like, provided the model. And... It's just, um, I think it's really important to feel empowered to impact the world in whatever way, whether that's um, starting a um, a peer support network, uh, writing a newsletter, um, super gluing the locks at a McDonald's, doing graffiti. Like, just ways that people express agency, I think are are so important and very valuable.
1: And there you have it, folks. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Protest and Survive. You just heard an interview with Colin Hagendorf. You can find more information on Life Harvester Radio, Slice Harvester, Colin's current newsletter, Life Harvester, all at colinhagendorf.com, which is C-O-L-I-N-H-A-G-E-N-D-O-R-F.com. We now have original music provided by Jesse Crawford. And this episode was graciously edited by Chris Pickering. So thank you so much to both Jesse and Chris for getting involved in this team effort at Protest and Survive. Please drop what you're doing right now and go rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. Every little bit helps in getting the word out there. Usually at some point in this podcast, I ask folks to make a donation. I think right now you should find a local COVID-19 relief fund and donate there instead. But to listen to previous episodes and get more information on this podcast, you can do that at anchor.fm slash protest dash and dash survive. I am your host, Reed Dunley. Thanks for tuning in. Catch you next time.